Hey, just want to take a quick break from this episode so I could tell you guys about how I just launched my new Patreon page. If you don't know about Patreon, it's a great way for people to support creators with a monthly subscription. Becoming a Patreon supporter can even come with a few perks, like early access to new episodes and getting special shoutouts on the podcast. I've recently started working part-time at my job so I can focus more time and energy on the podcast and YouTube channel. So any support would be massively appreciated, and it helps me towards my hope of making this my full-time job someday. So if you want to help support me in that, please head over to patreon.com slash hooptheory. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash hooptheory. Thank you so much for listening, and enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome to the Stephen Curry episode of the Hoop Theory Podcast, aka episode 30. My name is Logan Wortman, and today I'm not joined by my good friend Jacob Roth, sadly. He is still getting moved in to his new place, doesn't have his recording setup ready to go over there quite yet, but hey, that's okay, because I have plenty of things to talk about in the world of basketball. You know, there's a few things right now that would be very easy for me to just rant and ramble about uh, to no end, but before we get into that, I do apologize if I sound a little off today, I have been sick with a cold the past couple days now. I've unfortunately come down with a nasty cough and a sore throat as well. So that's not really ideal for recording a solo episode. But hey, we'll get through this together. And you know, like I said, we have multiple things that we could talk about here today. But I honestly think just one of those things will be enough to focus on for this episode. And we can save that other stuff like all NBA and playoff matchups for the next episode with Jacob back in action. So that one thing that I would like to talk about today is the MVP conversation. And I know I've talked way too much about this for this entire season. It's dominated way too much of this show's airtime. But yet, this topic still found a way to get like a million times more interesting than I can remember it being in a long time. You know, there's been some recent occurrences between some of the candidates that, you know, add to this kind of dramatic finish to their MVP campaigns for this season. But I think the place to start that makes the most sense would just be the most recent straw poll that just came out. For those who don't know, Tim Bontemps at ESPN, a few times every season, he pulls a big pool of of people that mimics or, I guess, simulates the type of people that have votes for the actual MVP award. I'm not sure if maybe it's just not disclosed information of who all actually has a vote. I'm not sure why he doesn't pull the exact people that do have votes. I've just heard it described this way before, that it's like, it's pretty close or pretty spot on to the people who do have votes. There might be a few, you know, substitutes here and there, but yeah, I don't know. It's basically, he goes through the same process that the actual NBA does to pick who has a vote. He, he does that process uh, again on his own to select voters for the mock voting of the MVP award, if that makes sense. Um, it's proven to be extremely accurate. And from all the people that I've heard on podcasts and stuff that talk about how they have a vote, you know, they're all pulled in it. So I know that there's at least a good portion of the people voting in these straw polls that are actually real voters. I think it's mainly some local beat writers and, you know, people who are journalists overseas. Some of those people are the, are the ones that are mixed and matched, might not be the exact same people. 
but apparently the NBA has a few categories of different types of journalists or different types of people that get votes. And those are two of the categories. You know, I think it's at least one beat writer from each uh, local NBA team market and then a certain number of overseas journalists as well. So yeah, after I've explained all of that nonsense, let's get into, you know, what this straw poll was, what, what the results were. This was the final straw poll of the season, um, seeing that there's only five games left. And for those who don't remember, about two months ago, the last straw poll that came out, Jokic led by a landslide. He had like 78, I think, of the 100 first place votes. And he actually still is in the lead for first place votes. But what's changed now is it's much more razor thin of a margin. And Joel Embiid is actually winning in total points for this, you know, how they do the MVP voting because they do ballots of ranked choice voting. You pick one through five, you get more points for being the first person on the ballot and less points for being the last, obviously. And so Joel Embiid had two less first place votes. He had 40 first place votes while Jokic had 42. But in second place votes, Joel Embiid had 45 and Jokic had 39. So he had six more second place votes. And then there's the third place votes also. Jokic had four more of those. But in total, this resulted in just two total points of a difference. Joel Embiid being first with 790 total points and Jokic being in second with 788. And Giannis is actually in third with 612. So just for context, at the last straw poll that was taken, Giannis was actually in second with 520 total points. So he has almost 100 more total points now, and he's in third. You know, that that's how close things have become. Giannis was the only other player to uh, receive a first-place vote other than Jokic and Embiid, and he got 18. Um, he then had 15 second-place votes, 64 third, and somehow he got two fourth and one fifth. Um, to be honest, it should be every, every vote of the top three should be given to one of these three players. Nobody should be voting for Giannis fourth or fifth. But three people did, and it looks like Jason Tatum was the beneficiary of those votes. He was voted second on one person's ballot, and he was put third on a couple other people's. And Tatum got 90 of the 104th place votes, so Tatum is pretty much locked into that fourth spot. And fifth is really close uh, between Luka Doncic and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And honestly, it's not too far of a drop-off from them down to DeMontis Sabonis and Donovan Mitchell. So yeah, that's the top eight guys. Um, if you want to see who all got votes, um, you can go look at that. There's multiple websites who have it, but ESPN is the source, obviously. But yeah, this is very close uh, between Joel and Jokic, obviously. In fact, it would be by far the closest MVP race or final tally of all time. The current record holder for that was the 1990 NBA season, which was a difference of 22 total points between Magic Johnson and Charles Barkley. And like I said, this one's only a difference of two. I don't know how things will end up, but I don't know. I have a feeling, I have a good feeling about Jokic maybe pulling this one out because of what Embiid pulled a couple weeks ago, or really just a week ago, I think. A week ago tomorrow. So it's not even been a full week. But where I think a lot of things started to swing towards Embiid's way in between last uh, straw poll and this one, you know, like I said, how Jokic was so far ahead at the last straw poll. You know, what I feel like changed between then and now 
is number one, those results, people reacting to those results, seeing how much of a heavy first place position Jokic had. There's a lot of people reacting to it, kind of overcompensating the other direction because they thought that it shouldn't be that much of a landslide, that it, you know, should be looked at closer than that. So there's a lot of people, you know, trying to be contrarian to those results, which honestly, even at the time when I saw that, that was one of the first thoughts I had was, I wonder if this is going to get people, you know, there, there'll be enough discussion. The momentum of the discussion will be pushed more in the direction of anti-Jokic. You know, Jokic shouldn't be this heavy of a favorite or even in some cases, you know, he shouldn't win it. There'll be enough negative Jokic talk that it'll be easier for people to put him second, you know, or third. So there's that. And then also the Nuggets and the Sixers played a game shortly after that straw poll came out. Um, they played in Philly and Embiid right out of the gates. You could tell what he was doing that game, you know, trying to make a statement. He was clearly thinking a lot about the comparison between him and Jokic and wanting to dominate that particular matchup in every way that he could. So, you know, he was putting up a ton of shots, especially right away. And Jokic honestly seemed uninterested. You know, he kind of played like his normal self being a pass first kind of guy. But then shortly into the game, the Sixers, at least I believe this was an adjustment that they made in the first quarter. I don't think they started the game like this, but I might be wrong. They started defending Jokic with PJ Tucker, um, who's the power forward for the Sixers. And I really don't like when teams do that against Jokic because it's a good method, I think, you know, because he, to a fault, he's kind of unselfish. Like he'll he won't score. He won't decide to be aggressive and score the basketball unless the game kind of demands it. And like, I know to a lot of people, you know, I just kind of sound like a homer and I'm hyperbolizing things. People kind of write it off. But I genuinely believe this, like watching Jokic over his career. I, I, I genuinely do believe Jokic is just as good, if not better, of a scorer as Embiid. But, you know, obviously people always give Embiid the edge in that category because he scores a lot more. But the difference is, like, that's Embiid's entire game. You know, he goes at teams trying to score, and he's more of the guy that, you know, he kind of only distributes or only defers when the game demands it. You know, it's kind of the inverse of Jokic. I genuinely believe if Jokic took as many shots as Embiid per game, he would score more points than Embiid. I, I do believe that. You know, at least score just as much. But I, I have, I don't know, I would take Jokic in that race, personally. I honestly can't really tell if my voice is more soothing to listen to in this state because because it you know sounds lower and everything or if it just is painful to listen to because of how sick I sound. I'm interested to see what this turns out like. But back to the topic at hand, Embiid and Jokic, you know, had that game in Philly where Embiid dominated and the Sixers won that game. Oh, I was talking about the adjustment that the Sixers made to put PJ Tucker on Jokic. To like the majority of NBA fans I don't know, people just kind of think about things like in a one-on-one -on -one basis, like P.J. Tucker is guarding Jokic. And so his ability or his, you know, how, how well he is guarding Jokic one-on-one -on -one is the only factor involved in what that does, you know, what an adjustment like that does. But in reality, that's like, that has nothing to do with that adjustment. It's not about who's guarding Jokic. It's more about who's not guarding Jokic. And what that does, what that allows the player who's not guarding Jokic that would usually be um, to do. The main advantage that the Nuggets have against teams a lot of times, and the reason why like some of the best defenders in the world at the center position always seem to be complete non-factors defensively, 
in games that they play against Jokic is because for all of time, for, or for a long time now, up until pretty recently, within the last year or so, teams have always played Jokic in the traditional fashion by putting their center or, you know, in some cases, they're all defensive level center with like Rudy Gobert, Miles Turner, Joel Embiid, those guys, they guard Jokic. But, you know, that gives the Nuggets a huge advantage because especially on a lot of those teams like Utah and Indiana and Atlanta, their entire defensive schemes are built around their rim protector uh, at the center of it, which is that center guy, you know, that guy that matches up with Jokic. Gobert for the Jazz, Miles Turner for the Pacers, and Clint Capella for the Hawks. And so when those guys are guarding Jokic, like we just said, Jokic's primary mode of operating or primary way of playing is as a distributor, as like the playmaking hub of the offense. So if he's the playmaking hub of the offense and he's finding guys who are, you know, doing some off-ball actions to get open on some cuts or some flashes out for threes, those other four players on the court are operating against uh, the other four players on the court that aren't guarding Jokic, you know? So it's it's a four-on-four, essentially, because you're taking Jokic and Jokic's defender out of the equation because Jokic is is feeding... It's like an inbounds play, if you think about that. He's, he's playmaking out of the post or high post a lot of times or the wing to the other side of the court, usually. And so, you know, now all of a sudden, a team that is, you know, their entire defense is built solely around one guy. That one guy is not a part of that defense anymore when you're looking at it as a four-on-four situation. They don't have rim protection, and especially in like the Jazz's case, number one, they don't have any good perimeter defenders because their whole philosophy was we don't need good perimeter defenders if we have Gobert at the rim. So let's play up on threes, don't let teams shoot against us, and basically invite them to drive to the basket to blow past our perimeter defense to try to get to the cup because we like our chances with Gobert defending those shots at the rim. But when Gobert's defending Jokic and defending against the Nuggets, he's pulled away from the rim a lot of times, especially if, you know, the Nuggets know about that advantage, which is what which is really what flipped that series back in the bubble, that 3-1 comeback that the Nuggets had over the Jazz, was we started positioning Jokic farther away from the basket. He was stretching Gobert farther away from the cup. So the Nuggets offense was able to exploit the fact that they don't have any rim protection or defense for that matter. It was basically a layup line. So basically that concept, but to a less extreme, is the same advantage that the Nuggets hold over any team in the league that have a rim protector as like the key cog in their defense, you know, the last line of defense, essentially, which there's a good amount of teams in the NBA that that have that actually. But the teams where Jokic struggles the most are teams that actually have their rim protector or like their best defensive player in a lot of cases is the guy on the, the weak side, the guy that's not actually matched up with Jokic. There's some teams that have that naturally. And so that's why the Nuggets have always struggled against them. But recently, teams have started to take note of that, of like, wait, so teams guard the Nuggets way better when they have this kind of guy off the ball. So, you know, if Jokic is pretty slow or pretty um, reluctant to score, why, why do we care so much about who's guarding him? And also, when he does decide to score, he scores just about as easy as he wants against almost anybody. So, like, let's just guard him with somebody, the second best option maybe, and put, you know, our rim protector off the ball to try to plug everything up that, that goes on off of Jokic. Not allow cuts to the basket to be near as successful. Um, it gives you more length in those other four guys on the court to plug up passing lanes. 
honestly, there's some other, like if I really wanted to take a deeper dive and make this way longer of an episode than it needs to be, I could do that. But, you know, those are the basics of, of why it's uh, advantageous for teams to throw that kind of a defense at Jokic. But, you know, those teams that do that naturally are like the Celtics and Grizzlies also as well. But, you know, that was developed more recently. Uh, the Lakers, you know, back in the, the bubble, the Western Conference Finals, they had that going for them where they had a traditional center like Dwight Howard, namely. And I think JaVale McGee was on that team, too. You know, those guys would guard Jokic. And then they had Anthony Davis, who's just about the best example of this that you could have. They had him off the ball on the opposite side to, you know, kind of roam. You know, he was I believe he was guarding Jeremy Grant that whole series and he sagged off him quite a bit. Jeremy Grant was not hitting his corner threes. Um, His shot was not on that series, at least according to my memory. (laughs) So that allowed Anthony Davis to sag off of him um, and clog up the paint, which was rather effective. Honestly, Jokic's best minutes on the court was when they had Anthony Davis guarding Jokic. But, you know, there are a few counters that that the Nuggets can throw back at them. Like what I'm trying to say is it's not a complete kryptonite, but to be honest, I've not been a huge fan or had a large amount of trust in Michael Malone, the head coach of the Nuggets, to make the right adjustments or throw the right counters back at teams. But, you know, if they were just guarding Jokic with one of those traditional centers, you know, a lot of times traditional centers come with some weaknesses, especially in the playoff setting that can get them played off the floor. So if that guy is like Andre Drummond or uh, Steven Adams or, you know, a a number of other players, uh, Rudy Gobert also, then the Nuggets can just say, like, you know, if, if you want to guard Jokic with that player because of how you want, you know, to defend Jokic's passing game, uh, then our offensive sets will just become Murray and Jokic pick and rolls. We'll put the ball in Jamal Murray's hands, have Jokic set the screen, and those traditional defenders are usually toast in those kind of scenarios because of the threat of, of Jamal's pull-up three-pointer, pull-up mid-range shot, or if they overcommit to Jamal coming off that screen, then Jokic is open rolling to the basket. Um, so that's the best kind of offensive counter to that situation. But so that's why, you know, it doesn't scare me too much going into the playoffs because I know that there is something that would be pretty reliable to fall back on. But it does, you know, this this thing that teams are doing to the Nuggets does throw a wrench into how the Nuggets offense usually runs, what our bread and butter is. But yeah, uh, going back to teams that do that naturally, Uh, The Celtics, like I said, with Al Horford, who is, you know, a few episodes ago when I was talking with Jacob, he asked me uh, a really great question that I have thought a lot about since that episode. And I, you know, I I wish I could change my answer on it a little bit. But he asked me basically who the ideal defender would be to guard Jokic. You know, if you were to create somebody in a lab to guard Jokic, what would he look like or who would he be? And my answer right off the bat with that was Marcus Saul, which I still believe in, but you know, he's not really an active player. So, you know, I struggled to come up with a good modern, like current example, but Al Horford, honestly, is somebody that I forgot to mention. I didn't think about, but is definitely up there in that department because he has good enough size, you know, Jokic, a lot, you know, people call him seven foot a lot. I really think he's probably like six ten and a half you know, somewhere in there. And since he's gotten skinny, he's, he's not near as big as he used to be. He's still very strong. Don't get me wrong. It can back down the majority of people in the NBA, but he's not like, he's not Joel Embiid. You know, Joel Embiid is significantly bigger than Nikola Jokic. You know, like the size difference between Embiid to Jokic is basically the same as from Jokic to Al Horford. 
But Al Horford, you know, veteran, very savvy, smart defender. He has great hands, you know, great timing on his jabs at the ball, defends well without fouling, all those kind of things. So Al Horford is about as good as they come as a one-on-one matchup with Jokic. But don't get me wrong, like if it's, if we're just playing one-on-one between Jokic and Al Horford, Jokic is absolutely cooking him still. You know, Jokic is going to be able to score what seems like at will against him, but it's going to be, it's going to slow him down a little bit as compared to, you know, the average guy (laughs) that Jokic sees most games. And then also on top of that, they have Robert Williams, uh, Time Lord, who is another one of these guys, like I'm talking about with Anthony Davis, Draymond Green, Evan Mobley, uh, Jaron Jackson Jr., Giannis. I can't remember if I said Giannis or not, but he's in that same category with all of those guys as that guy to roam off ball. Um, like I said, back in the bubble with AD, it was Jeremy Grant that AD could sag off of. But on this current iteration of the Nuggets, that would be Aaron Gordon. And Aaron Gordon's even worse of a shooter than Jeremy Grant, which, you know, I'm not going to get into all of that. But like overall, I probably would stick with AG as a Nugget. I wouldn't trade him for Jeremy Grant because of other areas of his game. But this does make this specific thing easier for the other team to do, where teams can sag off Aaron Gordon a lot of times. But Robert Williams the third, a.k.a. Time Lord, he's one of those guys that can uh, fly around contesting a lot of shots, has a great wingspan, he's very versatile, can switch cross positions. But yeah, he presents that same thing um, as those other guys. On top of that, the Celtics, you know, at every single position, are super active defensively, super long, got a lot of size and speed. So that even on top of just the simple duality of good defender on Jokic, and great offside help defender, uh, rim protector. You know, on top of those two things, they also have an insane ability with their personnel to clog up passing lanes, to swarm Jokic, um, not allow entry passes to Jokic, you know, all of those things. They are a team that is built to give the Nuggets problems. Um, I think I mentioned the Grizzlies a little bit ago, but I don't know if I... Yeah, so so it's Steven Adams, uh, naturally, you know, is the matchup for, for Jokic and Jaron Jackson Jr., is like, you know, one of these unicorn type of defenders who's not, he's not a traditional center rim protector. So just traditionally wouldn't, he wouldn't be tasked with guarding Jokic. Like I'm giving you examples of teams that kind of accidentally came upon this great defensive game plan to throw out Jokic because that's, that's just how their natural matchups line up. I think the new look Cavs have this also um, in this newer era where they have Jared Allen at the five and Evan Mobley at the four. And I, I can't believe I've gone this long without mentioning the Warriors. That's one of the main reasons why we matched up so poorly against the Warriors and why Jokic kind of just had to become a one-man uh, scoring you know, unit for us to do anything in that series last season in the first round. You know, they have Kevon Looney, who is, you know, he's not Al Horford. He's not, but he's like a poor man's version of that, where he's not bad. But he does, Jokic tends to get Kevon Looney into foul trouble extremely often. But, you know, they have Draymond Green as the guy off ball, super smart, help defender, very versatile, insane wingspan. Um, That also combined with the fact that Jokic didn't have his second and third best offensive players on his team with him uh, because of injuries. So it was already hard enough to uh, elevate the rest of his team in the way that he usually does, just in terms of the personnel that the Nuggets were rolling out. But then you couple that with the matchup nightmare that is the Warriors for the Nuggets. You don't get great results. 
Um, I think the Bucks also kind of have this. We don't play the Bucks a lot. Uh, same, same with the Celtics, you know, since they're an Eastern Conference team, we'll usually only see them twice a year. But the Bucks have Brook Lopez as a big guy in the middle. You know, you do have Giannis off the ball. This is something that the Heat have always lacked. That's why the Nuggets, like, destroy the Heat. And, you know, it's weird because the Heat do have the guy that I'm talking about, this mold of player, like the super versatile help defender, guard one through five type of guy with Bam Adebayo. But then they also don't have, they have like zero centers on their team to play. You know, they have Omer Yurtsevin. They used to have Dwayne Dedman. I don't know why they let him go, to be honest. But Bam Adebayo is forced to play center most of the time just by default. And, you know, they had P.J. Tucker once upon a time, which, you know, if they still had him, they would be able to do this. But yeah, they don't really have an option. I don't know who else you would put on Jokic other than Bam Adebayo. Because like what I'm saying, aside from not having any centers, they also don't have any power forwards or even small forwards, like natural, like, like I think, you know, Jimmy Butler is where he fits optimally is at the two. He can play the three just fine, but he's a two in my mind. You know, he's not like a big three. He's a smaller three, if he if you want to call him a three. Like there's some there's some cases where you can get away with a big brawny small forward, you know, just getting him to try and do his best, like a Robert Covington type of thing, to just, I guess, try and do their best and guard Jokic one on one and allow Bam Adebayo to do his thing off ball. But yeah, like I'm saying, the Heat literally don't have that on their team. Like honestly, the closest thing to that that I can think of is Max Struess, just because he's pretty wide. You know, he's a really broad guy, but he's only like 6'5", six, 6'4 six, and a half, six, five, somewhere in there. So, you know, he's given up like six inches against Jokic, as well as like 50 plus pounds. So yeah, they're forced to put Bam on Jokic. So Jokic is able to play like he normally does pretty well. Um, although the Heat are really smart defensively. So they, they do make it a little bit harder for Jokic to get into his playmaking bag, I suppose. And I don't know what it is, but Jokic is always like, he sees red. I feel like when he, when he plays the heat, he comes out a little bit more aggressive. He's more willing to score. I don't know if it is because of what I just said about how maybe the heat make it a little harder for, you know, the cutting game to work. And Jokic sees that and just decides to go to work against Bam. But the amount of times that Jokic has just put Bam in a turnstile, and I believe you can even look this up, like a lot of interviews with Bam Adebayo saying that there's no question the hardest player in the world to guard for him at least is Nikola Jokic. And I think that is because Bam is a little bit smaller than everybody thinks he is. Like, I don't think Bam is actually 6'9", to be honest. I feel like people think of him as like 6'9", 6'10", maybe even. But honestly, I I feel like he's probably more like 6'8", 6'7", even. I would probably say 6'8", but like he's really not that big, especially when you just looking at him compared to Jokic, which that's a whole nother discussion for another day that I might go into on one of these solo episodes of players in the NBA that just aren't as big as or you know a different size than what they're always listed at or what people think of them as like there's just some players that I I look at on the TV standing next to other players guarding other players and I'm like there's no way that that player is that size you know weighs this much or is this tall like there's just no way but we'll get into that another time Obviously, this has gone quite off the rails, not talking about the thing that I originally set out to talk about. But to be honest, I might just start saying this at the top of especially these solo episodes. Like at this point, if you've listened to me in the past, you should know what you're getting into. I'm going to start with an idea in mind, and I'm just going to talk about it. 
and my mind is just going to go wherever it goes to try to break down every idea that I that my brain just latches onto, I guess. And it's an experience. So what you're signing up for when you decide to listen to one of these episodes is just kind of a stream of consciousness, you know, not a lot of rhyme or reason to it. But I think we've covered enough about the uh, the teams that naturally fare well or naturally match up against the Nuggets in that way where they have a guy at their four position, you know, their power forward provides a lot of rim protection and defensive value. So, you know, over time, I think teams started to notice what, you know, the few teams that fared well against the Nuggets that were able to defend them at a higher level than everybody else, what they all had in common was this thing that I'm talking about. So, you know, there's teams that have adjusted their game plan to make their lineup or their matchups a little bit more untraditional, but to try to get this same type of result. That is what the Sixers did to the Nuggets in this game that I started off talking about. And there's at least one other really good example that I can't, because I know that that Sixers game came pretty shortly after another team had pulled the same thing against the Nuggets, where they came out and they had their center not guarding Jokic. Was it the Spurs, maybe? I can't remember if it was the Spurs or not. It might have been the Jazz, to be honest. The Jazz might have started moving Kessler, who's their greatest source of rim protection, as a rookie already in, in this league, he's one of the best rim protectors in the NBA. But obviously, it's really tough for him to guard Jokic. They might have been the team that moved him over. Was it the Blazers, now that I'm thinking about it? Oh, no, it was the Nets. I think it was the Nets, wasn't it? Man, this is probably very entertaining to listen to. But I want to say it was the Nets. I think the Nets started defending us with... But how many times have we played the Nets? I think both times we played the Nets were after that, maybe. Unless we played them three times. Oh, here we go. This is this is a great thing to look at. Just the Nuggets schedule. That's what I should have looked up. Okay, so it might have been the Pelicans. Yeah, so this was back in January, late January, where we... It might have been the Thunder, too. But I can't remember if Jokic... Jokic might have not played that game against the Thunder. Yeah, he didn't. Okay, my memory served me correctly. So we lost a game by two points to the Thunder on January 22nd. But then we played against the, the Pelicans which we, we won, but it was a very hard-fought battle. We only put up 99 points, which is unheard of in the NBA um, these days, which we actually also put up 99 in the game against the Thunder. But that's more understandable because we didn't have Jokic, and the Nuggets' offense is garbage without Jokic. But this game with Jokic, getting 25, uh, 11, and 10, no less, we were only able to beat the Pelicans by one because they deployed okay yeah so that this isn't the same exact thing that i was just talking about where they you know like what the sixers did was they put a guy on Jokic who usually doesn't defend Jokic. but what the pelicans did was on top of the guy that traditionally would defend Jokic in their lineup they also put in another center or another guy that provides rim protection on the floor to give them that same dynamic of having rim protection on the weak side. And also Jonas Valanciunas isn't like a super great rim protector in the traditional sense of like shot blocking, although he is a big body. So, but they, you know, he, he's the one that they had one-on-one with Jokic and then off ball, a guy that doesn't usually start for them. In fact, I'd be curious to see if this was the only game he started all season, but I wouldn't be surprised if he has started some games because the Pelicans have been extremely unhealthy. Yeah. So he started two games this season. One of those games was against Indiana, but the Pelicans were without Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson. So that is exactly what I had assumed. Uh, the only other game he was in the starting lineup was because of injuries. But, you know, in that game against the Nuggets on January 24th, they did have Jackson Hayes in the starting lineup, 
who maybe some people don't know. He's like a seven footer, like legit seven foot. Um, shortest I could see is maybe like his hair is really big. So maybe he's like six, ten and a half. Maybe he's like the same size as Jokic, but he just looks a lot, a lot taller and he's super athletic. He's a lob threat, high flyer, rim protector. So yeah, that's the strategy they were using. We were able to pull out that game, but it was a game that we should definitely have won uh, because they were also undermanned without Zion and Brandon Ingram that game as well. We were without MPJ, but that, yeah, it's still a game that I think what they did there was very effective and that stuck in my mind. And then the next game after that, we lost against the Bucks. So this is a little slide that we had, which I honestly don't really remember. Like, I don't remember losing three games in a row. Well, oh, it was only two games in a row, I guess, but that win against the Pelicans felt like a loss because we didn't even put up 100. In fact, we we only put up 99 points in three games in a row. We won one of them, but yeah. So against the Bucks on the 25th, so it was back-to-back the day after the Pelicans game, we also put up 99. The Bucks put up 107. You know, they're one of those teams that I was just mentioning before that naturally match up with the Nuggets like that. So yeah, it was, it was two games in a row of me seeing the power or the effectiveness of having, you know, a room protector off the ball. And then the Sixers came out. Well, actually, they didn't come out. We went to Philadelphia and played them the uh, 28th of January. And they guarded Jokic with P.J. Tucker. Like I said, this has been going on for way too long. I don't need to belabor this point any longer. Basically, what I'm saying is that's what the Sixers did. Uh, that that was the effectiveness of why why the Sixers were able to dominate the Nuggets in the fashion that they did. Not really dominate because it was 126 to 119. But it was what gave them the upper edge in that game on top of Embiid having a very, very good game um, offensively, putting up 47, 18, and 5. Jokic had a below average game of 24, 9, and 8, but he was 75% from the field. Even though he was being guarded by P.J. Tucker, it didn't really feel like he ever really flipped it into you know a higher gear and started going attack mode against him because he only took 12 shots total which for those that don't know is a very low amount for your best player to take. Uh, but it's not that uncharacteristic of Jokic to take that many. That's that's how funky and weird of a player Nikola Jokic is. For those on the outside, if you're wondering what this is like, it's it's extremely weird to have this good of a play. It's kind of like Steve Nash was about was probably the last player that was in this type of mold where they dominate the game so immensely, yet it looks so different and is often discredited or, or dis, they're often disrespected in a way because a lot of people can't get over the fact that they don't do the things that normal MVPs or normal best players do. You know, they're not putting up 30 points every game. You know, people look at Steve Nash's back-to-back MVPs as a mistake a lot of times. You know, they say that people who have won two MVPs or have won back-to-back MVPs, you know, that club of people is like the elite of the elite plus Steve Nash. Like, you know, he's always like the outlier there. Um, I don't think it should be looked at that way, but uh, people do. And I believe the reason why is because they can't get over the fact that he averaged 15 and a half points per game one of those seasons. But Steve Nash had such an unbelievable amount of control over the games that he played that he was he was the most valuable player on the court night to night, without a doubt. And that's similar to what we're seeing with Jokic. And in both cases, Steve Nash and, and Jokic, were guys who are very capable scorers and could put up more points, a lot more points if they wanted to. But they, what they saw, you know, they saw a greater advantage in playing in the way that they do, which is to diversify your attack and just basically read and react to what 
the defense presents. That's all Jokic and Steve Nash do or slash did, you know. It's like running an option in football, you know, every play when Jokic gets the ball in the post. He takes a few dribbles to and sees, you know, he gauges how the defense reacts. If if people shade over, he looks at and you know, this is why he's able to to throw all those unbelievable no-look passes, you know, that you might see the highlights of where he throws like it behind his head or like completely over over his shoulder with pinpoint accuracy to the corner, it hits somebody right in the shooting pocket. And people are like, how did he even know that that player was there? There's a reason he knew that they were there because that's just kind of the offense that the Nuggets run. Like he has an idea of where guys are positioned on the court and he can tell how open they are by seeing all five defenders out of his peripheral. So he reads the defense and that's how he decides what to do with the offense. But honestly, that doesn't make it that much less impressive the fact that he knows where they are because he's still able to place those passes with such precision and speed as well. And, you know, sometimes he'll manipulate the defense and pretend like he's going to throw, like with his eyes, he'll look off a defender pretending to throw to the obvious option that's open because of what that defense player is doing, how, how that player's shading off of his primary assignment. He'll look the defense off, making them think that he'll throw it there which their reaction to that will open up another teammate who, you know, cuts through the defense or is, you know, positioned in a different spot on the court behind the three-point line. And he'll deliver the pass to them instead in a situation now where there is no natural closeout because of where he sent the defense with his eyes. And then if the defense scrambles and tries to rotate to get a contest up on that guy, that leaves another guy open. And basically you just need to pass the ball around the court faster than the defense can recover at that point to find an open shot. But yeah, once again, I don't remember why I just explained all of what I just explained. Jokic won MVP twice in a row. I think I was just saying that Jokic is a funky player. But yeah, so basically to speed this up a little bit, after this game, the narrative kind of became like, oh, Embiid dominated the Nuggets. You know, he's, so he's kind of pulled ahead in the MVP conversation, especially when with that paired with the overreaction to Jokic being so far ahead in the last drop hole, you know, it felt like momentum shifted towards Embiid's direction. And I believe this drop hole was gathered or taken before, I, at least I assume because of when it came out, it must have, most of these votes at least, pro- must have taken place before the last Nuggets and Sixers game, the most recent one. And that's why I feel pretty good about Jokic because of how close this was and how I feel like that last game, what happened around that last game that was played, how much that's going to impact this discussion, which I'm not saying is going to be immense, but with this razor thin of a margin, you really don't need anything immense. And before I forget, I just want to mention the amount of games Joel Embiid has played because I just started to think about, you know, wait, what if, like, are there things that could swing in B's way? Like maybe miss time for Jokic because he's missed the last couple of games now. But then, you know, I, I thought about, you know, Embiid misses a lot of games too. And has definitely missed more than Jokic at this point. Yeah, so he's only played 63, Embiid that is. And they have five games left. So at most he could play 68, which I believe I saw recently. In the entire history of the MVP award, the only player to ever win MVP while not playing at least 70 games or at least the equivalent of 70 out of 82 for some of those shortened seasons was Bill Walton in 1978. So Embiid would be the first player since Bill Walton to win the MVP award with less than 70 games. So that's something to look at. Just wanted to say that because that wasn't written down in my notes. I have a horrible habit of forgetting things that I want to say. 
So this last game that was played between the Sixers and the Nuggets, and you know, ever since that that one in January happened with Nuggets at Sixers, people have been talking about or that rematch basically, and how it could impact the MVP discussion uh, significantly. To see how Jokic responds basically, and to see how Embiid plays in Denver, um, you know, on the road, um, which he hasn't done by the way since 2019 when Jokic hit a game winner in that contest. Just want to throw that out there. And Embiid um, did this sit-down interview with Sham Sharania from The Athletic. And, you know, Sharania wrote a article documenting that interview. And that article just so happened to drop the same exact day as that Nuggets and Sixers game. And for those of you who think that that's just a coincidence, it is most likely not. You know, Sham Sharania, pretty well-known as not, he's not like the uh, peak of, you know, journalism or class. I'm not trying to insult Sham Sharania at all, but it's just what his role inherently is in the NBA is he is a insider. You know, he gets he gets information, intel before other people do so he can release it. That's like his whole thing. He's one of the two major guys that does this in the NBA from d- two different companies. You know, they, they're kind of rivals, him and Woj, Adrian Wojnarowski from ESPN. But, you know, their job description basically is to do favors for players and for front office executives and, you know, other people around the league in exchange for information. So, you know, what convinces Joel Embiid to do this interview with uh, Shams instead of Woj is maybe something like a conversation going on about strategically dropping that article, you know, at the most optimal time for Embiid, you know, to try to campaign for an MVP award, which I know this kind of sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's definitely not like Embiid is definitely without question, been extremely vocal and upfront about his campaigning for the MVP award, him wanting to win it uh, the past three years now. But in this article, in this interview, he just did that once again. But always in the past, for the most part, he's usually avoided like the, you know, like talking down about Jokic or like going at Jokic at all. Because in the past, he's, it's more about, you know, why he thinks he deserves the MVP, which is perfectly fine, and not resorting to poking holes or criticizing Jokic at all. But this is where he's decided to change on that for some reason. Like in the past, it's always been Jokic and Embiid have, from the outside looking in at least, have a pretty good relationship. They get along well. They always say nice things about each other in the media, all that kind of stuff. Um, But Embiid recently, just before this interview even, you know, he even said publicly the reason why he, you know, was so aggressive in a game against the Warriors uh, and Draymond Green is because he heard Draymond Green say that, Jokic is the hardest player in the NBA to guard. So, you know, Embiid went out there, was trying to make a statement about that, which, okay, that thing doesn't bother me at all. Like, I'm fine with that. That's just being competitive and everything. And just to be clear, I've always been a pretty big Embiid fan. Like, I've I've always not wanted, even though Embiid and Jokic have always been kind of pinned up against each other as rivals, I've always found it hard to root against Embiid because I just like Embiid naturally, you know? And even, like, the week before this situation that I'm talking about happened, I kind of came to grips with like, like, I don't really care that much about Jokic not winning his third MVP. And honestly, I'm fine with Embiid winning it. Like, I think he has a good enough case to win the MVP award. And I was just kind of coming to terms with that and was kind of comfortable with it. You know, I was like, that's good for him. Like finding a way to be happy for Embiid, uh, you know, in that way. But now I've kind of changed on that. Like I, I view Embiid just a little bit differently (laughs) after, after this. Like, I think that this was not cool of him to do because, you know, he drops that interview or, you know, Shams drops that article on the day that the Nuggets and Sixers are going to play against each other. 
and he says things in there like uh, he shouldn't be talked about as a guy with the most pressure. Like he, he said that people are saying he has the most pressure on him for winning a championship this this postseason, which like he's definitely talked about as one of those guys. But I would say there's been even more discussion or more things about Jokic having the most pressure on him. Like that's definitely been a bigger topic than Embiid. But Embiid says like he thinks that he shouldn't be at the top of that list for guys who have pressure on them this postseason because there's guys out there that have won two MVPs or multiple MVPs that also haven't won anything in the playoffs, which is just a funny quote because who else is he referring to there? Like, I don't think he's talking about Steve Nash. What he's saying is he thinks that Jokic should have more pressure on him for this postseason, which number one, I already think that he does publicly. Probably doesn't feel that way to Embiid because obviously you're going to hear all the stuff said about you more so than other people. But, you know, that was the first kind of instance of him taking a little bit of a shot at, at Jokic. But then he also went on to say something about defensive analytics, how analytics don't make sense, because obviously analytics have always been used like advanced stats have always been used as the uh, as one of the main topics or main points for Jokic's MVP case. Um, so he basically just starts talking bad about analytics in a way that is just kind of it serves as a funny quote, you know, again, like he says, Defensive analytics don't make much sense or don't make sense or something like that because, you know, the numbers can say that one guy is, you know, one of the best guys in the league on defense, but then they fail the eye test as being a good defender. Like they're clearly not a great defender, which obviously he's talking once again about Jokic because Nikola Jokic has led the NBA in defensive box plus minus and I, I believe defensive rating as well, which are, you know, two of the, the most primary and most talked about or reliable defensive advanced metrics that there are, which take that with a grain of salt because defense is a lot harder to measure than offense. And I wouldn't say that there's any like super great defensive metrics out there. But I also think that people have gone too far the other way in saying that they don't make any sense at all and that they mean nothing. Like they're they're the best thing that we have to measure. I think I'm not saying the eye test is useless. I'm saying you need to kind of pair the both of them with it. And like when, when the numbers say something different than your eyes do, think about why, you know? Don't just like write off the numbers as nothing. Like the numbers still mean something. People act like, including Embiid, that these numbers are just like something that somebody makes up. Like they don't think about where the numbers come from. It's not like an arbitrary thing. Like those numbers, especially defensive box plus minus, it's, all it's doing is measuring how much teams score against, you know, this player basically. Like the how much the opposition, the opposing team scores when this player is on the court and compare that to, you know, what the case would be for the average player in the NBA. What's the average amount of points per possession that teams score in league? And then compare that to what are the average points per possession that teams score while this guy is on the court, you know, on, on the opposite end. And then you get a number from that, you know, how much they deviate from the mean. And Jokic has led the league in that stat. Which like, you can't say that it doesn't make sense or that it doesn't mean anything because literally what it means is that teams score less against Jokic than any other player. So why is that useless? Why, why does that not matter? You know what I mean? Like I'm pretty fired up about this topic because there's people that I super respect as like basketball minds and like uh, basketball voices, I guess, namely Kevin O'Connor. Like this is the most me and, and KOC have ever disagreed to my memory. I've had some problems, I guess you could say, with Kevin O'Connor this season, where he's taken he's taken a really weird turn on how he talks about Jokic now, namely with the defensive side of the ball. 
like honestly in my mind he's falling too much into just trusting the eye test sort of thing i'm not even um hypothesizing that he's verbatim said that he he thinks those stats are are useless basically like he thinks that the they don't make sense because Jokic like so clearly isn't good on defense sort of thing even though he in the past KOC has like kind of talked Jokic up on defense a little bit because I think of he just he saw the numbers but it, then over the rough stretch where the Nuggets lost quite a few games in a row like I really feel like a lot of people just took that sample of watching Jokic on defense and ran with it which I'm not saying that I'm not even saying that he was as bad on defense those games as people think you know there's a few things with that like I think that he was worse than he normally is but then also he's still not as bad as it looks because with our eyes I, I just think we're bad at measuring defense with our eyes a lot of times, like how we kind of naturally tend to do it. I think that there's a disproportionate amount of significance or value placed on blocks in the NBA, like blocking shots. I think that is literally the most overrated stat that there is, is amount of block shots. Where I think the eye test comes into play as like the you know clarifying thing, like it clears up what we're looking at, where you can't just take the amount of shots somebody blocks and make a one-to-one equation to that person's value as a defensive player or as a as a rim protector specifically like you you can't do that because there's so many players like Rudy Gobert like he for a long time now has not gotten that many block shots per game compared to how good of a, a rim protector he is namely because of reputation like that has such a big impact on what players decide to do players decide not to challenge Gobert at the rim most of the time because of how good of a rim protector is so he has much less opportunities to actually block shots. Like this is a very, very important, significant thing when you're talking about the amount of blocks that people get. Like the people that get the most blocks are help defenders usually, guys that aren't defending one-on-one. They kind of come out of nowhere a lot of times. Or they're guys that they don't have as good of a reputation to the point where players fear them, you know, enough to just completely stay away. Because that reputation is serving your defense very well. Like you're they decide not to drive against you, which is a win for you, <laughs> by the way. It's definitely basically always a win when you're convincing the other team not to drive to the basket against you, believe it or not. And honestly, another thing that comes to mind when I think about this is a while ago at the beginning of the season, I was going through all of last season's stats. I was helping my brother-in-law with this thing, this project he does where he, you know, he has an Excel worksheet that tries to predict, you know, the winner of games in the NBA solely based on inputting like their counting stats every game, like the amount of blocks, uh, steals, points, rebounds, assists, turnovers, like positive, negative, all, all of those things. And like putting a weight on each of those stats and then, you know, getting a final score, a final number. Like he's trying to use that as a predict, trying to develop a model that predicts, you know, the winner of games effectively. And he was talking about, he wanted to know which stats should have the most weight you know, which stats were the most important. And so I went about that trying to figure out what stats are the most important by sifting through, like making an equation with each stat uh, that every team accumulated and making a formula that showed how much that predicted success. Like, so the ranking of teams in total blocks, how much does that correlate to their rankings of how many games they win type of thing? And do that with every, every single stat. The only stat out of all of the stats that were in there, like field goal percentage, like everything, the only one that actually predicted negatively, like the teams that blocked more shots lost more games. So I, and so that's something that kind of stuck with me. And I started, I thought a lot about, um, I don't know if it's like that every season. Again, all I know is just based off of last season stats, uh, all 82 games of last year, the more shots a team blocked, 
the less likely they were to win, which I don't think that that's necessarily like specifically true. You know, I don't, I don't think that blocks are a negative thing for your team. All I'm trying to say is blocks. I, I don't think are nearly as important as people think that they are, because a lot of times when you're blocking a shot in the NBA, it's plenty of times in those situations, it's, you're doing the wrong, like it would be better to not send it out of bounds or block it straight back down into, you know, the offensive player to recover. Like you should try to gather the ball, like grab the ball out of the air or tip it, hit it in a way that, you know, sends it to your side of the court. So your offensive players, your teammates can try to get it and recover the ball. Because one of the most important things in basketball is possession of the basketball, um, obviously. And so a lot of times with blocks, like I'd be curious to see that that might be a, an interesting study to do, to look at what the percentage of shots are, how accurate people's shots are, what the field goal percentage is for shots that come directly after a block shot on a possession, because I feel like it's higher because a lot of times after a block shot, the defense isn't playing the normal way that, you know, it usually does. They, they either kind of give up on the play because they think it's over or, you know, the fact that that player went out for the block. Now he's out of the play, out of position to contest at the rim immediately after. There's a few specimens in the league that are good at, you know, a second recovery or, or a second contest like that in quick succession. But a majority of the time, Miles Turner is a guy that comes to mind with this. Like there's highlights of, of him uh, in one game against the Bulls. Like he had like six blocks or something like that. And all of them ended up still being scored. After he blocked the ball, the offense would recover the ball and go right back up with it. Not necessarily the guy that he blocked it on, but uh, it might be like a, a person right off to the side or, you know, something like that. And now there's an open basket because the shot blocker has, you know, his momentum has carried him somewhere else. All I'm saying is that it might not even be intentional for Jokic. Like he might not even be thinking of it that way for why he doesn't contest a lot of shots at the rim. You know, it could just be his physical limitations. The fact that he's, and, and also the fact that he doesn't get a good whistle, you know, a lot of times he's not interested in picking up any unnecessary fouls. Like, I really do think that Jokic's game plan on defense, or at least, you know, what he does effectively on defense is Jokic does a good job of commanding the defense. Like he, he's like the, the quarterback of the defense in a way. Like he, he's always communicating, pointing out where people need to be, pointing out like different things the offense is doing. He's basically what he does on offense, but he doesn't have the ball. So he has to do it with words, you know, and you'll see that a lot too on offense where he's pointing, positioning people at the, at the beginning of a half court set like telling people where they need to be. And then, you know, they start the play. He's basically our coach is what I'm saying. But defensively, he's communicating, telling everybody where they need to be, what what needs to happen. Like, because, you know, with Jokic, they they do a lot of cross switching and kind of complicated things where you have to have good communication to pull them off. And he does that extremely well. And he's always positioned, like he's, he's in good position to not allow the ball to even get into the restricted area in the first place. And, you know, even though he's not a great like shot blocker, or doesn't contest a lot of shots at the rim. What he is good at is before the shot goes up a lot of times, one thing he's super good at is basically getting the ball when it's on its way up. That I don't think that's ever credited to him as a block. I believe there that would go down in the stat book as a as a steal, but it's like it's like a block before it becomes a block. You know what I mean? He's really good at getting his hand precisely on the ball as players start to come up with it and knocking it out. And that to me, that's a more effective or more uh, efficient, advantageous way of knocking the ball out than doing it out of the air or at, at its apex. Because at its apex or out of the air, there's a pretty good chance the other team is going to recover the ball. When you're swiping down, 
hitting the ball out. You're hitting it straight into a place where you can recover the ball, or you're hitting it straight down at the offensive player's lower extremities to knock the ball out of bounds for the ball to go off of the offense. And also, there I think there's another thing to be said about Jokic actually defending at the rim, shot blocking. Like he's he is better than people think he is at it. It's just most of the time he chooses to concede layups. Like he doesn't contest a lot of shots throughout the course of the game, especially if it's like in the first half. There's plenty of clips you can find where, yeah, it looks like Jokic is a lazy defender. What I'm trying to say is I don't think he is a lazy defender. I think he chooses. He's he's good at defense. I like can't it be a thing where like how I just was talking about a while ago that how Jokic is so goofy and it's so weird and unconventional how he dominates on offense. Like, why can't that also be the case for defense? You know, it's hard to understand how good he is on defense, which I'm not saying he's like Bill Russell, but I'm saying he's not bad. Like he's a good defensive player. He's a positive defensive player. It's hard to understand it because the value that he brings to a defensive team is very different than most people or than what, how we're used to seeing defenders be effective. You, you get what I mean? And like, I know for a fact that he is an outlier because of this stat that we've been talking about, uh, defensive box plus minus, that Embiid says that it doesn't make sense and, you know, gives no credence to apparently. Like if you look at it, all the people who criticize it would be very hard pressed to find any other person in this that just doesn't make sense. Do you know what I mean? Like Jokic is number one by a good margin. His defensive box plus minus is 4.5. The person in second in the NBA is Alex Caruso with 3.3, which that is a little bit of an outlier because he's a guard. Usually you don't see guards that high, but everybody knows that Alex Caruso is one of the best defensive guards or or small wings in the NBA. Like he is, he is special on the perimeter. You know, like he, he provides a ginormous amount of value on the defensive end by himself which is very unusual for a player that's not a center or a rim protector to do. But nobody would raise their eyebrows unless they're like casual NBA fans who just think of Alex Crusoe as a meme, you know, that he's second in defensive box plus minus. The person in third, Giannis Antetokounmpo, who, you know, some people have been talking about throughout the season as defensive player of the year. And he won defensive player of the year a couple of years ago. And he's on at least one of the best defenses in the league. Uh, Draymond Green, number four. A lot of people look at him as one of the best defenders of all time. He's number four in defensive box plus minus. So... Like I could go on. Kyle Anderson, number five, another very well known as a good defender in the NBA. Number six, Joel Embiid himself is number six in this stat. Number seven, Jaron Jackson Jr. Number eight, Nick Claxton, who has gotten so much buzz this year as a as an all NBA guy or all defensive team guy is what I meant to say. Number nine, Jimmy Butler, another all defensive guy that you'll see on teams just about every year. Number 10, Herb Jones, who's another young like defensive phenom. Anthony Davis, number 11, another one of the best defensive players of all time at his peak, which he's been able to crack into a little bit in the games that he's played this year. De'Anthony Melton, another very well-known defensive guard at 12. So Jared Vanderbilt, Al Horford, Walker Kessler, you know, Evan Mobley, like these, if this stat didn't make sense, why would all of those people be up there? Like, <laughs> you get what I'm saying? It, you, obviously, it predicts pretty well uh, in, in tandem with the eye test. Like, it lines up with the eye test pretty well. So just like other advanced stats on the offensive end, you know, where you'll see a guy that maybe according to the eye test, you wouldn't think that they would be that high. If you see him that high, it probably means something. It like, it means that there's something that your eyes not seeing. It doesn't mean that it's right. And your eyes wrong, but the answer is the truth is definitely somewhere in, in between. You know what I mean? Like it's definitely not just the stat is meaningless and doesn't bring any value because before, you know, when it wasn't Jokic at number one, people were just fine using this stat in the arguments. So 
like I said, for you know some of those reasons I already described, why Jokic is, I believe, a good defender, but it's just different than, than most people are good. Like, I feel like there's so little nuance when people think about defense versus offense. I, th- I think there could definitely be more nuance with offense as well, but especially defense. People tend way more to, uh, to just look at it as like, so, honestly, some people just like, they think about it as, are you a good defensive player or not a good defensive player? Like it's binary. Like you're either a good defender or a bad defender or, you know, maybe an average defender, but it's like a spectrum like linear, you know what I mean? Like it is not linear, just like offense. Like I feel like people understand that about offense a little bit more. Like Russell Westbrook is not a bad offense player, but he is, he was detrimental to the Lakers offense. Like fit wise on the Lakers, he was, he destroyed their offense. (laughs) He became a liability because there's certain ways to be good at offense that are different than other ways to be good at offense. You get what I'm saying? Same goes for defense, literally the same. It's mirrored. Like if we had five Jokic's on the court, we would have a problem defensively in the same way that if we had five Joel Embiid's on the court, we would also have a problem. Or you like the only people you can't say that about is like maybe Giannis and Draymond Green would be a great one. You know, like those Swiss army knife guys that can defend one through five. Like those are the complete packages, those guys. But there's certain, like you can mix and match things like form. That's what team building is. You know, you're, you're building a defense to optimize certain players' skills or certain players' you know, positives that they bring. Jokic has certain positives and he has certain negatives. His, cert- his negatives are very obvious to see on the screen because you watch a guy walk into the restricted area and lay up the ball without getting contested, which doesn't happen all the time, but there's definitely a lot of examples where you can find that because Jokic, he decides the smarter play for him is to concede that layup and direct his attention more to getting the ball out of bounds quickly and getting it back in bounds quickly, you know, to take advantage of try to try to beat the other team back switching ends, which he's very good at. He does that a lot. Uh, that's why you see so many highlights of him throwing full court passes to somebody streaking down the floor, beating the defense up the floor because he knows the value of getting early offense like that. And you, you know, you could say that him just conceding the layup that has gotten to the basket and trying to, you know, it's a good defense to try to just match those points right back um, doing what he does. It's essentially a stop, if you think about it mathematically. And in that case, he doesn't get a foul also. He's much more likely to not get a foul, <laughs> which is extremely valuable for the Nuggets because Jokic in foul trouble is just about the worst thing that could happen. The reason why I really think that this is deliberate, why he cho- he's just choosing to concede the layup is because in crunch time situations where that basket, like, it's like a last second play. It's on a game winning shot. Last season, he had at least three, because I, I remember them vividly. He had at least three game winning blocks last season where he blocked an attempt at the rim on a game winning shot. One was against Zion. Another was against OG Ananobi. And I want to say the other one was, I know it was against the Grizzlies, but I think it was Ja. I know I just said that I remember them all vividly, but I remember at least the two of them very vividly. I, I know for a fact there was at least three is what I'm trying to say. You can fact check me on that. And he's had more in the past as well of game. Like he's had, he had one in the playoffs even like against the Warriors. Yeah, it was against the Warriors. But regardless, what, what I'm trying to say is somebody who has had like that many game winning block, like we've won a game off of him blocking a shot at the rim that many times. Like it's, he's probably not a defensive liability. You know what I mean? He probably knows what he's doing out there. 
and he's better at blocking shots than people give him credit for, but he chooses, like, it's a strategic thing that he doesn't, he decides not to contest shots. At the, and this is another thing. People throw out, like, my co-host on the show, Jacob Roth, last time when we were talking about this, and uh, I've heard Kevin O'Connor, the other guy that I was talking about earlier, they both have thrown out this stat as like a uh, knock on Jokic sort of thing. The one that Jacob brought up was, he said that teams were shooting 70% at the rim um, over that couple game stretch that I was talking about everybody overreacted to where the Nuggets were losing games and there was a lot of clips going around of, of Jokic giving up shots at the rim. And when he said that, I was like, that's not even that high, is it? But, you know, I didn't want to say anything without checking first. And I, I'm pretty convinced now that people who just use that stat, they don't fact check it or not necessarily fact check it, but check what that is compared to average. Like there are a handful of teams every year. There's a few this year, like three or four, maybe something like that. When I looked um, that are over 70%, that's what they're, they average on the season is they, there's a 70% success rate for teams shooting against them at the rim. And so if you're using that, like if you're using a number, you know, insert number in this sentence that you're, you're talking about Jokic, you know, being such a bad defender that he's giving a blank at the rim, like that needs to be like a staggering number. And the fact of the matter is 70% is just not a staggering number. <laughs> it's really just not that extreme. And then also throughout the season, on average, teams shoot 65% at the rim against Jokic. I'm, that's a direct quote from what Kevin O'Connor said. Okay, so that, that's the stat he shared as like a knock on, on Jokic. I went and checked, like I said, what all of the teams in the NBA, what they give up at the rim, what teams shoot percentage-wise at the rim against them. And that is below average. So the point you just made is that Jokic at the rim is a better than average scenario. Like, I don't understand why people are, number one, using this as such a big thing. And number two, like what I was just talking about, how it's really not that bad of a thing for what, like how he's choosing to defend like it's a conscious choice to give up certain shots at the rim. But then also like efficiency wise, it's not hurting them all that much. I'm honestly convinced that Jokic is just, he's an effective defensive player in, in ways that are non-traditional. Like another one that I feel like is super non-traditional people don't think about very much is like one of the best advantages that you can have as a defensive unit is defending against a dead ball. Like you're defending after a dead ball. So your, your defense is set and ready already. You're not in transition. There's, it's a half court set being run. Everybody's in position. Everybody's matched up with who they need to be matched up with. All those things. That's one of the most important predictors of how well you'll defend the other team. And the fact of the matter is Jokic puts his defensive team, his teammates, you know, on the court in that position more often than any other player in the NBA does because of how much of a walking offense this guy is. Like all these stats I'm talking about defensively, he's ahead even more staggeringly in the offensive ones of how efficient the Nuggets score while he's on the court. The more you score, the easier it is to defend. That's just a fact. Like that, That's why when you have two defensive teams playing against each other, like that series that we saw a couple years ago, actually just last year, I think, between the Celtics and the Heat, maybe it was the Bucks and the Heat. I think it was the Bucks and the Heat. What, one of those. One of those defensive powerhouses out east against the Heat, who's also a defensive powerhouse. Them playing against each other, each game would not be close at all, but the winner of it was like completely up in the air. Like it could have been either of them. They kept going back and forth in terms of who would win each game, but both games, but, but every time it was like a 20 point, 30 point game, you know, uh, people were so surprised by that, but it's honestly because their offenses just, they could not score against the other team's set defense. So in a situation like that, what is the most important thing for your offense? Well, it's, it's for the other team to miss shots against you. So the team, 
it's it's like whatever team starts to miss shots first the most, you know, misses the most shots early, that makes it easier for the other team to score. And every time the other team scores on you, that makes it harder once again. It's like perpetual. You know, it makes it harder once again for you to score on the offensive end. So it's like a cascading thing that like when one team gets the advantage in it, like they're going to break ahead a lot because the more they break ahead, the easier it is for them to keep doing it, to keep scoring and to keep defending. If that makes sense. Like if you're neither team can score in the half court, the only points come in transition, then the team that is getting more stops is going to score more. And the team that's going to score more gets more stops. You see what I'm saying? Uh, like the Nuggets second unit, a lot of people say, a lot of like I've heard Jacob, like my co-host once again, said one time about how the Nuggets second unit is better defensively than our starting unit because there's better defenders in our second unit, which is true. They're from like top to bottom, one through five, our backup unit has more defensive players, more like good, solid defensive players. But the thing is they can't score on anybody. So our second unit on defense is still way worse. And that is because the offense is worse. The offense is that much worse that it, it affects our defense a lot. I feel like that's the truth behind the, the saying of like uh, a great offense is a good defense. Like that is very true because like, it's just inherently very important that people I don't think is looked at enough as like a, a factor for defense. Like it, it just should be like, I, I get that. Oh yeah. In a half court set, just looking at it in a vacuum, dragging and dropping players into a half court set, seeing how effectively they are able to increase their, their team's chances of stopping the, the other team. Um, Jokic probably doesn't rank as high in that category. You're even close to as high in that category as he does in terms of throughout the course of a game. How effective is he at helping his team stop the other team? You, you get what I'm saying? Because the fact of the matter is he's very good at putting the other team in the position where they have to score in the half court because he's good at putting the ball in the basket, to, which allows their team more time to get back on defense. That shouldn't be a non-factor for how good of a defensive player you are. Like, I get it from the fact of, yeah, like what I just laid out, the looking at it in a vacuum thing, he's not. He's not that great of a purely defensive player. But I just wish people would, I don't think people see it that way. I think they just look at it like closed, shut case. Your team is worse defensively if he's on the floor, which is just not true. He might be not as good of a defensive player, but your team is better defensively with Jokic on the floor. That's just a fact. And then all of those those things I laid out earlier about why I think he's a better defender like just at the at playing defense, you know, than people even think he is. All of this is just, you know, my TED talk on why Jokic is miscast or like misinterpreted defensively. I don't know what I'm tra- what the word I'm looking for is, but I think you get what I mean. Misunderstood, misanalyzed. Uh, um, I think this is a good place to stop. Honestly, I didn't even get into what I really wanted to get into, although I got into most of it, I think. But I've been recording for over two hours now, two hours fifty minutes, so um, I should probably stop now. But okay, just to say, you know, I I had some things written down that I'm like, I can't forget to say this. So just going to do those very fast. Um, So, you know, the case against Jokic for MVP, um, I'm not going to get into the whole stat padding thing, although that I was planning on doing that. That would be too long of a discussion. The case against Jokic for MVP a lot of times is saying that he can't win three straight because that would be historically a blemish on the NBA. Like it'd be unprecedented because nobody's ever won three straight MVPs without a championship. The only people who have ever won three straight MVPs are Russell, uh, Bill Russell, that is, Wilt Chamberlain, and Larry Bird. All three of those guys won championships. But, you know, even though this is thrown out there a lot, people don't look at, you know, Wilt Chamberlain actually didn't win his first championship until the postseason after he won his third straight MVP. So he 
if Jokic won the MVP this year, he would be in the same situation that Wilt was because Wilt still had not won his championship until like it was the same season that he won the MVP, but he was already awarded the, the MVP before the postseason, before he won his championship. So they, they didn't know that he was going to win. So I think that matters, that factors into this a little bit. Like it wouldn't be that unprecedented to, for, to award somebody their third straight MVP who has not at that time won a championship. And the Nuggets have a pretty good shot, as good of a shot as anybody this season to do that. So I don't think it would be a tragedy to, uh, to award him the MVP. And also the Nuggets playoff success uh, over the past few years, I, I think is completely overplayed on how much of a disappointment it is. I put that in, in quotes because I don't, I wouldn't call it a disappointment. I don't think we've ever underachieved in the playoffs. I, I know I've talked about this a little bit before on this podcast already, but I think people are factoring in the two seasons. Like the Nuggets have only been in the postseason four total years, you know, in this Jokic era. And I think the first two seasons, people are factoring into the equation about like how, you know, Jokic can't be awarded his third MVP because he didn't win the championship in those those two years. You know, it's like, okay, Jokic wasn't even close. Like Jokic was a completely different player in 2019 and 2020 than he is now. He was not at this MVP level. Like he took a big jump in 2021 when he won his first MVP. He's at a different level now than he was then. So you can't look at it as this, it's the same guy. You know what I mean? Like it's not, because I think people are saying like, oh, he can't be that good to win three MVPs. If if he can win three MVPs, why hasn't he won, you know, championship? It's like, okay, well, he was, he's still pretty young. He was young in 2019, 2020. He wasn't as good as he would end up being yet. And the, the team as a whole was still being built. The team as a whole was not as good as we are now. And then in 2021, our team was a lot better and Jokic was a lot better, but we also uh, were extremely unhealthy. We lost Jamal Murray uh, for, you know, that entire postseason. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. played some of the games in that postseason, but he was completely a non-factor because he was injured. He was very stiff, could not move around very much. And people tend to forget or tend to overlook that we are, were also without our backup point guard, you know, the guy who would have been starting in, in Jamal's place, and then also our starting shooting guard. Uh, there might have been another person on top of that that was gone, but the fact of the matter is we had our our third string point guard and our second string shooting guard, two of which do not play anymore. One of them is not on a team, and the other one doesn't, he isn't in a rotation on any team. And we were going up against Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, which was like one of the best backcourts in the league. Could have been the best backcourt in the NBA. I don't want to think about it too hard, but so that's just a testament to how dominant Jokic is that we were able to win that series pretty handedly. And then we lost to the Suns in the next series. And, you know, I think there are multiple reasons for that. I think Jokic, he was more fatigued at that point than he was all season because of how long he had been just putting the team on his back. And also the, the Suns were a lot better than the Blazers. And also they matched up against the Nuggets a lot better than the Blazers. And coaching wise, I, I think Michael Malone coached a pretty terrible <laughs> series in terms of the adjustments that he would make defensively. So yeah, there's a lot of factors that went into that, but we lost that in a sweep obviously pretty famously. And then people kind of downplay how good that Suns team was at the same time. Like they, they were up 2-0 on the Bucks in the finals. They looked like they were going to win the finals. Everybody thought after those two games that Suns were winning it. So they were, they were a pretty good team, you could say. And that's not even, I didn't even mention in 2020, we went to the Western Conference finals. You know, one of those leagues that I, or one of those years that I mentioned as the Nuggets weren't even like the Nuggets yet. You know what I mean? 
but we went to the 2020 Western Conference Finals against the Lakers, who ended up winning the whole thing. And they won every series that they played that year in five games, including the Nuggets one, which was, I think, the only series that shouldn't have gone five games that they played. We, without a doubt, should have won game two. And we did win game three. And KCP, uh, I think somebody else from that team, from that Lakers team, has said that they think if the Nuggets would have won game two, if that Anthony Davis shot did not go in at the last second in game two, that the Nuggets would have won that series. So there's that. And the reason why Anthony Davis hit that shot and won the Western Conference Finals game two and eventually won that series is all because of one player's mistake, Mason Plumlee. Because for some reason, he was not guarding Anthony Davis out on the perimeter. He miscommunicated with Jeremy Grant. Jeremy Grant didn't do anything wrong. He was still he was guarding LeBron. Mason Plumlee, I think, just had a brain cramp and he reacted as if there was a screen. Like, I think he was expecting there to be a screen for LeBron, so he would have to switch onto LeBron. And that didn't actually even end up happening. But he just, he already was anticipating it so much that he just did it anyways. So there were two guys on LeBron and Anthony Davis flashed out for a open three-point shot on the wing off an inbounds play. And the person who contested the shot was somehow Nikola Jokic, who was defending the inbounds passer at the baseline. He turned around and saw that Anthony Davis had nobody guarding him and sprinted out and almost contested, like almost got a decent contest on that shot. But yeah, it ended up going in and that, is, that sealed the fate of the Nuggets that season. Um, and then last year in the playoffs, the Warriors went on to win the finals, you know, after that first first round series that we played uh, that I think that I, I kind of talked about before. So yeah, I think that's all that I wanted to talk about. Uh, kind of sped through the, the last few things, but this MVP race will be very interesting to see. Oh, I didn't mention that. Okay, so I was going through that Joel uh, dissed Jokic, you know, in those quotes, which I I, th- I think I said most of them, but I, there might have been a couple others. Um, I can't remember which ones I've said now. But all you need to know is Joel kind of, he said some things about how he thinks that he should win the award over Jokic. And then he proceeded to not play in the game that they had that night in a way that was very like, like he, he was sitting out for rest, which is understandable to keep him healthy. He needs to sit out some games for rest. It's really weird to choose that one to sit out. That's very odd, especially since he's, he, it seems like he's chosen to do that for a while now because he hasn't played there. He hasn't played in Denver since 2019, even though his team does every single year. He, they play there at least once every year. So that's, that's interesting, um, especially since, his, you know, traditionally, historically, barring this last game that happened, it's always been said that Jokic beats Embiid. You know, back in the day, it was always Carl Anthony Towns always played really well against Jokic, and then Jokic always played really well against Embiid, and then Embiid always played really well against Cat. So it was like rock, paper, scissors. Embiid beats Cat, Cat beats Jokic, Jokic beats Embiid. I think that it's changed now at this point because Embiid and Jokic are clearly on a totally different level than Cat now. But yeah, that's an interesting thing is maybe Joel was very happy with how he played in the last game. He's, he's obviously very interested in winning the MVP this season. He cares a lot about that. So it seems like he was kind of looking at it as, you know, he had a good performance against Jokic in the last game. He thinks that it would be better, a better move if people just remember that one. So if he doesn't play in the next one, all people can talk about, all people can look back on is the one game that they played where Embiid was better. So yeah, that's a little bit of a, of a thing. And, and I was surprised to see the reaction to this. A lot of people are more on my side in the media with this. There's even a lot of Sixers fans that on Twitter were like, mad at Embiid for like, it was just a bad look. Like he shouldn't have done that, especially like it's the combination of the things, the diss 
that came out, came out of nowhere when Jokic has done nothing but say extremely nice things about Embiid. Always pre- like he, Jokic always talks about Embiid as if he's better than him, like as if Embiid is better than himself. Like that's the way that Jokic talks about him. That's the way Jokic talks about a lot of people, to be honest. He's even said in a quote before he like he he thinks he's not he, like the person that he's playing against is better than him. Like he's always in the mindset of he's the underdog, which is an interesting mindset for an athlete to have. It's very unorthodox. But regardless, Jokic, you know, has only said nice things about Embiid. Embiid goes out and, and, and does that, talks bad about him and then proceeds to not play against him. And then what's even funnier, what makes this whole situation even funnier is after the game and like since this happened, Jokic has continued to only say extremely kind things about Embiid and not in a way that seems like passive aggressive. You you know, he's just like, I don't, I'm sure Jokic got word of what happened, like what that article said and stuff. I don't know if he was bothered by it or not, but after that game uh, in questions about Embiid, he all, all he did was talk about how good Embiid is, how important he is to the Sixers, uh, how valuable he is. He said multiple times, I don't know if he did, he has since this happened, but he, I've heard him say in interviews multiple times that he hopes Joel Embiid wins an MVP. Like, I don't think he's ever said, like, I hope he wins it over me this season, you know, that verbatim, but he's very clearly said, like, he wants Joel Embiid to win an MVP award. So I just think that Joel comes out in this situation looking not very good, and it makes me a little bit less cool with him because before it was just a very friendly relationship. Now it seems a little like Joel's He's letting this MVP race get in between them. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, that should be it for this episode. Uh, this will be a long one, even though it's a solo one. But yeah, hopefully you like what you got. Thank you for listening. Hit up my Patreon, if you don't mind, at patreon.com slash hoop theory. I love you and I appreciate you. And I will talk to you guys next episode. Mm-hmm.